Hey, IC Warriors. This week, I have Jenna Hayward on the podcast. Jenna is an IC warrior living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. A quick note, in this interview, Jenna and I discuss her history of medical PTSD and briefly touch upon the topic of eating disorders. So if these topics are triggering for you, you may want to consider skipping this episode. But I do think this is an awesome conversation that you're going to love. Okay, enough is enough. Let's get to the episode. Welcome to the ICU podcast. I'm your host, Callie, a registered dietitian living with interstitial cystitis. Each week, I'll be diving into hot topics in the IC world, giving others a platform to share their story, and I may even reveal some of my favorite nutrition tips. Thanks for spending time with me today. Now, let's get into the episode. Do you want to just do a brief introduction um, just about, you know, who you are, where you live, and we can get into, you know, the IC stuff after that. Okay, sure. Um, yes, my name is Jenna Hayward. Um, I live in Pittsburgh, um, Pennsylvania. Um, I'm 37 years old, and I'm a user experience designer at a, a marketing firm in downtown Pittsburgh. Cool. Um, How long have you lived in Pittsburgh? My entire life. So, you know, so much culture from never leaving hometown. <laughs> nice. And what do you like to do for fun? Um, I like to collect vinyl. So that's my true biggest hobby. Um, but, you know, so much fun, but um, it's definitely not a very um, good hobby for the wallet. <laughs> but, yep. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, do you want to now kind of go into you know, your IC journey, obviously you have IC since you're on this podcast. Um, so I guess I'll try to just like guide you through, or you can just, you know, tell me however you want to tell me, but you know, when did you start showing IC symptoms? Let's start there. Yeah. So obviously, um, when I was very young and, you know, obviously I didn't know anything about IC, but, um, I'd say when I was, uh, under 10 years old, I was a kid and I would, it would hurt to have to go to the bathroom. And I would tell my parents and they, you know, they didn't quite understand what I was trying to say. We went to a doctor. I had, I had a cystoscopy and voiding cystogram as young as six years old. Wow. Um, yep. And everything came back normal. So they told me I had anxiety because, you know, I grew up in a household that was an anxious household. So it made sense, right? That my mom just said anxiety, anxiety. And this went on, um, you know, my entire adolescence, um, teenage years, uh, all through my twenties and, uh, you know, it, it was on and off. So that's how it like, just kind of didn't become a huge issue. Okay. So it started really young. Now you said it hurt to pee. Can yep. you like, did it, did it burn? Did you have pain? Did it get better after urinating? Like, tell me about that. Yeah, it, it burned. Like when every time I peed, it burned. And I actually would dread going to the bathroom. Like I would just, you know, dance around it for a while until I'd have to emotionally like prepare myself. This is as a child. And when my mom used to tell me like, you know, use the bathroom, we're going out for the afternoon. I used to cry and be like, I don't want to. Cause it would, it would, it would burn so badly. Yeah. And, um, you know, and then she just didn't understand, like, of course, like what a weird thing to happen when you're that young. Yeah, you know? totally. And I'm like waiting to just tell you 
I had the exact same experience and I'm surprised this hasn't like come up before when we, you know, chatted on Instagram, but I have had the burning, you know, the exact same thing, like terrified to, to go. And, you know, your family doesn't understand it. I guess the only difference would be like your family like actually tried to get you into a doctor and <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, because, you know, that was the beginning of being of the gas lighting experience yeah. <laughs> at, uh, at six years old or so. Yeah. So then, you know, how were things going through adolescence with those symptoms? Um, you know, to be honest with you, I actually thought that it burned for everybody to pee. <laughs> then I literally same. <laughs> We yeah. are the same person. Oh yeah. my God. <laughs> so I just kind of like ignored it and was like, I guess this is how my life is. <laughs> okay. When did you find out that was not normal? Um, so yeah, it wasn't until I was in my twenties, um, late, late bloomer. I started being sexually active and it would be, the burning would be worse after I had any form of intimacy. Like it would you know, that pain I experienced in a teen was like magnified by a million after I had any intimacy. And then that alarmed me. And I would be like, Oh, my God, I have a UTI, I must have a UTI. And I would run to the, you know, the, uh, the doctor, my PCP and get a urine culture and it would come back negative. Um, I would say between 20 and 30, I've probably had about 450 urine cultures. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You no, know, I, I was every time that I was intimate, I thought I had a UTI. There wasn't one time that I felt normal after having, you know, sex. So um, that was alarming to me. And it was embarrassing to me mm-hmm. because nobody, nobody properly taught me sex education. All my friends that were having sex were having great, you know, times. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't be like, <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm not. Hello? I'm not having a great time, guys. <laughs> uh-huh. So, so I finally uh, got the courage to see a specialist around the age of like 28 years old after, you know, like almost a decade of this pain. Yeah. And, you know, you said how all your friends were enjoying it. And it's <laughs> so accurate because, you know, you see, you grew up seeing these like, movies whether they're rom-coms or whatever the heck they are and like that's just how the media makes you think it's supposed to be and maybe it maybe it is for a lot of people but you know for you and me we kind of had these high hopes I'm sure you did (laughs) because I did and a lot of disappointment like is that what you felt oh yeah I felt disappointment I felt shame um, so much shame. Um, interestingly, I thought that there was something wrong with my partner at times. I would be like, I think I just need to find a new boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Like, why are they hurting me? <laughs> yeah. Whoops. Yeah. No, that was a wrong thought. <laughs> uh huh. So then, when did you get your diagnosis? Well, so when I saw my first doctor around 28, I mean, I was there for like vaginal burning and urinary burning, but they really focused in on the vaginal burning and diagnosed me with vulvodynia. 
Now, this was like way before the world of like pelvic floor dysfunction ex expanded and all kinds of stuff. And I had never heard of that word before. Like it sounded so funny to me. I'm like, what the heck is that? And the doctor was like, you need to do biofeedback. And he told me I need to get like electric shock in my vagina. Now that was for someone who's never like, that's terrifying. First of all, you're hearing there's something wrong with you. Yeah. You're hearing something wrong with you. And then they're telling you need electric shock. I ran out of there and I never thought of it again. Huh. <laughs> so then what happened so, after that? So like I was, whoops. So the internet connection says it's weird. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Um, so I just continued to have painful sex and go through this game of is it a UTI or what is it for, you know, a few years longer um, until in my mid thirties, I got, I mean, I've had quite a few UTIs that were real in my life, but I got a severe UTI around 35 um, with a new partner that I had. And um, I mean, it was like the, the, the like monster of all UTIs, worst pain I ever had. And um, <clears throat> my doctors were careless about treating it. I gave me the wrong meds, uh, left me waiting for results for way too long. And um, after all that happened, I finally did have the infection clear, but my pain never went away. Okay. I mean, I just felt like exactly the same, that severe pain after they told me my infection was cleared. And then from that point forward, you know, my pain remained, um, which led me to doing my own research because up until that point, no one ever said the word interstitial status to me, mm -hmm. not even once, you know, all of those UTI tests and specialists. I mean, I was going to urogyno specialists and no one ever said interstitial status. That's wild. Yeah. And it was an ER doctor who just said the word, he said, I know someone that had interstitial cystitis. And I said, what did you just say? Like, <laughs> what, is, what is that word? And I went home and, you know, the first thing I did was pull it up on my phone mm -hmm. and I was like, oh, I have this. Yeah. Yeah. And no, you know, I went to so many doctors after then trying to tell people I have this. Nobody believed me. And it wow. took me two years following by going to the Cleveland Clinic, waiting for almost a year to be seen there for a doctor to finally be like, yeah, you know what? You, you, you probably definitely have this. <laughs> probably. Yeah. yeah. Pretty definitely. He still wouldn't give me a firm diagnosis, but I looked at him and I'm like, stop it. <laughs> oh my God. I think most <laughs> doctors are like terrified to give that diagnosis. They don't want it. They don't want to be the one to have to mm -hmm. tell someone, hey, you have this disease right but I took it and ran with it and from that point was like okay I have interstitial cystitis so that's when I could finally start to learn about what was going on with me so that's my journey awesome <laughs> so, okay so so you say that you you just started learning yourself like where were you getting your info from I mean yeah that's tough because the internet you know a lot of false information mm -hmm. um you know, I was reading pretty reputable websites by, you know, reputable hospitals and research from like the Mayo Clinic to, 
you know, Cleveland Clinic stuff, all, all kinds of good documentation, the IC network mm-hmm. um, that we, most of us know about. And, um, you know, just kind of still just like in denial, <laughs> like, wow, is this, is this seriously what's going on? It sounds so scary when I read these articles. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, so that's how I started to learn about the different types of IC and like pelvic floor dysfunction and, um, you know, and then I, I felt very alone as we, most of us do, um, when you receive a diagnosis of any kind, especially interstitial cystitis, because mm-hmm. like, who, who has this diagnosis? Like, right. I don't know, you know like, what I mean? Like, you like know, you're, you're happy, about- you're happy that you get a diagnosis, but at the same yeah. time, it's so terrifying because you've never yeah. heard of it. Yeah. It's not like, oh, I have diabetes or my <laughs> interstitial cystitis. Like, oh, okay. No one in the world has ever said that word before in my world. Like I've never, where am I supposed to find other people that have this? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I had to find it. Like I typed into Google, literally, um, burning during urination and popped up I was like 18 maybe in first year of college and I was like this is totally me like the only thing that was not aligning with my symptoms was it said that you have burning that gets relieved when you urinate which was not the case for me no so much worse same so much worse following yes (laughs) So then I was like, do I have it? Do I not have it? And then that just, you know, started me on a whole, whole journey to getting an actual diagnosis. And then at one point, I even just started telling doctors like you did that, like this, I'm pretty sure I have it. And they were just accepting it. Luckily, it sounds like I had an easier time telling people this than you did. Um, That must have been horrible to just like, how did that go? Like, how did a conversation with a doctor go if they didn't really like believe you? Well, uh, my first experience was really rough, actually. And this is probably maybe a common experience, but probably more uncommon. But my doctor looked at me and I said I had interstitial cystitis or I said, you know, my bladder hurt. She said, how do you know your bladder hurts? I said, because I can feel it. And I said, I'm in a lot of pain. And she said, well, then it sounds like you're just here to try to get drugs. So, oh, unfortunately, because of what I look like, uh, you know, have, having a few like body modifications and tattoos, I guess I looked like someone trying to get drugs. And I literally looked at her and I said, don't you think I would have tried someone other than a urologist? <laughs> <laughs> like, uh-huh. There's nothing but geriatrics in here. Like, at least- right. You, I'm not going to hit up the local urologist for some. Okay. <laughs> That's such a good point. Yeah. Uh, and how many like doctors kind of did that with you? I'd say about three before I found the Cleveland Clinic. Yeah. And then did you like start having different conversations or was it just you met the right doctor? Yeah, there was different conversations. I felt heard and, you know, I felt like I was in the right place. And, you know, then treatment options started to become available to me, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, you know, like different ones I had heard before, like different ones. And, you know, I had even found on the internet in 
just to take it a step back, like when I was growing up with these problems, like the internet didn't really exist. So I couldn't like Google this. <laughs> we yeah. had like, you know, we didn't, it, no one had, no one was Googling stuff when I was in my twenties, like this just started happening. So that, you know, with the, the internet becoming, you know, what it is now, that has been a huge factor in how things got to this point. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And then what, what treatments did you try? Like, where did that end up going? Uh, unfortunately, um, you know, at first I wanted to try all of the easy first round treatment stuff, like uh, supplements, lifestyle changes, stress factors, uh, dietary changes. And then that's, you know, this dietary factor is a whole nother thing that we should definitely talk about. But um, mm-hmm. so I tried all the first step stuff. Okay. And uh, none of it personally worked for me. But I mean, I have made so many friends along the way. And so much of the first line treatment helped so many people. So uh, my second step was to get a hydro distension was also a wrong move for me. Um, Do you feel like it made things worse? Yep. Yeah, did not and then at that point, I started to develop a little bit of the beginnings of medical PTSD, because that experience was so bad for me that I was like, wait a second, aren't doctors supposed to help you? Why is everything I'm doing making me worse? So I was a little bit scared to go further into treatments, but I decided to try public floor dysfunction, uh, excuse me, public floor therapy, because I had also been diagnosed with pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, And I have to say that was one of the main things that helped me in certain aspects. Um, It helped me with the vaginal burning. It helped me with, um, you know, fear of anything, anything coming near that area. You know what I mean? Like fear of insertion and yeah. uh, And then it did help calm down some of the muscles you know, inside of me. But the one thing I do want to point out about pelvic floor physical therapy is it's, it's worse before it gets better. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I gave up several times because of that. But when I finally said, you know, I'm going to do this, even if it hurts at first is when I started to see some relief. Mm-hmm. Did you see different therapists or was it always the same person? No, I had tried three different therapists, actually, uh, I, you know, that's another thing is sometimes people with physical therapy, they don't have the right touch with you or the right, you you just don't like vibe with them well. And, uh, I found that my third try, I found someone that made sense to me and, uh, you know, we worked well together and, uh, she made me feel more empowered to do this. So that's that's amazing. Yeah, she was the first person I have to say, on my journey at that point that I felt like was on my team. Yeah, and that's a a really good point to bring up. I feel like me and even everybody that I talk to in the community, it's like we've all had to go through a bunch of really not great professionals, whether it be doctors, physical therapists, whatever the heck it is, we have to, you know, rave through all of these horrible experiences being medically gaslit and like finally you find that one 
person, maybe more that you yeah. really click with. And I feel like that is so powerful in all of our journeys. And I, I really hope that, you know, everybody eventually does find that person, but it sounds like that was a really great turning point for you. It was, it, it was the first time I felt hopeful for sure. And, yeah. and you're right about all of that. Right. Right. Okay. So after physical therapy, did you try anything past that, like more invasive? I did not. <clears throat> I, I know this is just me, but I couldn't find the courage um, because I have um, a lot of other health problems that I deal with. And, you know, my journey with IC is my, my own personal journey, which is unique to me. And uh, uh, because I have so many other health conditions, I couldn't focus fully on getting the interstitial cystitis treatments that I probably needed. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, and can you just kind of list those really quick? So uh, um, I don't really know why all of this happened, but um, in a, ma a matter of two years, I developed um, IBS was the first thing to come after the IC diagnosis. Um followed by uh, fibromyalgia, and then uh, EDS, um, a hyper, you know, mobile, hyper flexibility joint disorder, mm -hmm. um, which also ties a lot into pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, and then following that, my, my most recent diagnosis was uh, this year, vestibular migraine and chronic migraine. Yeah, so, that one looked really brutal when you were going through it. Yeah, this this one's the it's the, the mother of all <laughs> of all of them. So, you know, because of all these other things, um, I was getting treatments for every single one of these other things. So I was just starting to lose a little momentum here, like, mm -hmm. you know, trying to get all this stuff, especially with IC, it kind of took a back burner. I was like, interstitial, you have to you have to hold on for a while because I'm uh -huh. having other stuff going on. Yeah. At that point, you have to make a list of like, what's, what's the worst thing? What's the yeah. top priority? What's the top thing? And you know, it took a back seat for a while. So I didn't go further with any other treatments. Um, mainly because what I was being offered was the installations, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, Botox. And those are, you know, those are big kind of, can be kind of big deal things. And, um, most of my pain is so urethral. Mm -hmm. Um, I was scared to get the installations because, um, cause my urethra is, is so irritated. So that is something I'm still going back and forth about whether or not to do it. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. I, I, I'm also very <laughs> urethral in my pain and, yeah. you know, my experience was a little different because I was like so desperate in college and whatever my doctor told me to do, I, I trusted them 100%, yeah. which I should not have. And that's, you know, me reflecting back on it. There's no way I could have, you know, known that at the time, but I, I did anything and everything that I could have done. So I did the installations. I did the Botox in the pelvic floor. That was so painful. Um, and I also had a surgery for vulvodynia and no way. Yes. And it was called a vulvectomy vestibulectomy oh, yeah. and I had my skein's glands removed. Are you familiar with the procedure? I am. It's always something I thought about too. 
Yeah. So I went to this doctor in Philly and she's like really pretty well known for IC and, you know, I guess vulvodynia. And I thought this surgery was like my magic solution. And, you know, it, it really messed me up in so many ways. Um, it might've helped the vulvodynia a little bit, but you know, I wasn't mentally in a place where I should have been to do that surgery. So that's a whole other thing, but yeah, I mean, there's just so many things out there that are super invasive and you have to decide like, is this something that the benefit outweighs the risk? Yeah. Like you who has medical PTSD, like I'm sure that's a huge struggle. It is. Um, I'm, you know, right now I'm, my headspace isn't, is really flooded with medical PTSD, but it's something I'm working on with my therapist and I hope I can get through so that I can try new things again. Um, it is very hard to trust doctors when things haven't gone well. And, uh, you know, and just like you, I believed everything my doctor said at first too. And mm-hmm. I want to believe, I want to be able to believe, you know, like, yeah, and we should be able to trust them. So that's that's the tough part. It's like yeah. once that trust is broken, yeah. it's it's hard to come back from. It is. And that's kind of where I'm at right now is you know, trying to rebuild some trust that's been lost. Yeah. Do you have a good um IC specialist near you? Uh, no, I don't. Um actually my IC specialist passed away, which is another odd part of my journey. Oh. I know it was really messed up, but I, yeah. So, um, I see, uh, another one actually this month. So I'm going to start over and see what I can do. So. Okay, good. Well, you'll have to let me know. Yeah, I will. Um, you know, the Cleveland clinics where I'd like to go, but because I'm disabled, it's really hard for me to get out there. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, how far of a drive is that? Like two and a half hours. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, not the worst, but also not ideal, especially if you have to go back more than one time. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's pivot more to the food side of things. Yes. So yeah. <clears throat> I don't know if you want to just talk about, you know, the IC diet or just, you know, anything that you want to tell me, feel free. Yeah. No, there's a lot like the, the diet portion of all of this is has been um what I'd like to spend the most awareness about and like talk about because um so I before I start explaining um you know on top of every other thing that I struggle with (laughs) I also have I also have an eating disorder so I'm doing really well (laughs) (laughs) we Um, laugh through the pain you have to you have to laugh about it Uh so when did that start So I've had an eating disorder since I was a teenager. Um, And, you know, for me in particular, it took me almost 35 years to understand why I had an eating disorder. And I had an eating disorder for me, what I've come to determine, because I have very bad OCD, and then I had unresolved trauma. So those two things, you know, made me think that I had to control my life through food. And one thing that you learn about eating disorders is that it's never about the food. Like 
it's about something else. And you're using food as an easy way, you know, to think you have control of yourself and your life. And um, for me, you know, I was very stuck in that for a very long time. Um, I, in my twenties, even I lived inside of a hospital for one year being refed and they saved my life. So, you know, my struggle with the eating disorder has been pretty, pretty serious. Um, good news. Uh, I, I, I made it through, I, I lived and I got to a point of healing with this eating disorder. And for many years, I was leading a pretty normal life. I was eating what I wanted to and, uh, you know, enjoying life again. Um, but when I got interstitial cystitis, um, you know, that's where it kind of changed for me. And I'll tell you how, um, you know, when I first started getting seen, doctors gave me this list of things not to eat. And um, <clears throat> for did most they, people- Did they know about your eating disorder? So, so if they looked in my records, if they would have thoroughly- They should have known. <laughs> they should have known this. Okay. Because it is listed everywhere that I have an eating disorder. Um, because not just like, because I've been, um, in hospitals, you know, I've been to four inpatient hospitals getting help with this. This is not like, you know, a thing that's like, oh, you know, not in my medical records, but they didn't care, I guess, enough to really read my history. So, or, or maybe they did and they just didn't connect the dots, you know, because they, they are uneducated about eating disorders. And they handed me a list of what not to eat. That started my dietary demise with interstitial cystitis um, because I wasn't strong enough mentally to read that list and go, oh, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. when something says, do not eat these foods with an eating disorder, my brain is like, danger, danger. We're not gonna eat these foods. And uh, I literally started cutting big food groups out of my diet, like huge food groups. And I became irrationally afraid of food. And one thing I'd like to say about eating disorders is that people think that eating disorders are just anorexia or bulimia, but there are so many other types of eating disorders. My eating disorder stems from OCD so I have a problem with numbers, which is what my first eating disorder was about. It was about caloric intake and me only being able to eat certain numbers of food a day. It was, it was a, a unique thing. And then I have a fear of contamination and a fear of getting sick and becoming and, and vomiting. So I will not eat food for those reasons. So if a doctor tells me not to eat foods because it'll make you sick, this ignited my particular eating disorder. So I became very afraid to eat and, you know, that that's what, that's what happened. And then when I joined my, the support groups, uh, you know, that I was seeking help through, there's a lot of talk on the support groups about, you know, you shouldn't eat this, you shouldn't eat that, you shouldn't eat this, which made my eating disorder, which was becoming bad to be in full-blown relapse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I see that everywhere in these groups. So yeah. It it really is a real thing. And yeah. I know that there are, you know, tons of people out there who are coming into the IC diagnosis with 
a history of an eating disorder. And there's also people who don't have that history, they get diagnosed and then it triggers an eating disorder. So exactly. Yeah. It's, it's becoming so common. And that's like a huge thing that I'm really trying to help people is to break out of that food fear mentality. I know I'm not like 100% going to solve everybody's problems. They should definitely see a therapist, but you know, I'm, I'm trying so hard to, to help people with that and to respond to people's messages on Facebook and just things like that, that really, you know, if somebody sees a nutrition professionals saying like, you don't have to do this or be careful what other people are saying, then maybe it helps one person and that would be worth it. Oh my God. In my eyes, you're like a superhero for, for people, for people like that are struggling with that because it it helps me to have a professional tell me that it's okay. (laughs) You know what I mean? Uh, the, the guidance helps a lot it got me through it got me through every other form of eating disorder I've ever had you know because when you're left to your own devices um you you know you're you're living in your fear so I know that what you're doing can can definitely help people that you know are also afraid or have developed an eating disorder through through this through IC and you know I'm happy that there's awareness that food you know, food can make this disease worse for some people. Some food can. That's not, you know, that is a part of it. But every food trigger is going to be different for each person. Yes. So accurate. And I feel like whenever I'm trying to explain that to somebody, I bring it back to that landmark diet study they did in 2007 at Long Island. And, you know, are you familiar with the study? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'll just kind of do a brief explanation for the listeners. Um, So what they did was it was researchers at Long Island University, um, dietitians, doctors. I'm not exactly sure, but they sent out about 300 surveys to people with IC asking them, you know, there was a whole list of, of foods, over hundreds of foods and beverages. And they asked, like, what are you sensitive to? And they ended up getting a little over a hundred surveys back. And that information from 100 people is what the IC diet was formed off of. So we are literally being handed a list that was made from 100 people's sensitivities, which is extremely helpful for A lot of people, if they're doing an elimination diet and they're planning to test these things, Mm -hmm. but most people that I run into, at least they are eliminating these things, all of them only eating off of the bladder friendly list. And then they never test anything because the doctor didn't explain to them that they were supposed to test and that they're not supposed to follow this their entire life. And I think that is, you know, a really big disconnect that is happening. And it's really harmful. If you think about it, um, it I'm, I'm working on, you know, educating doctors and um, physical therapists about, you know, just trying not to feed into that food fear and explaining what an elimination diet is. And, mm-hmm. you know, just just that type of thing and trying to 
break out of that as a whole and just let everybody know it's not supposed to be a lifelong thing. Yeah, it's, it's not. Um, and you're right. Yeah. Your traditional doctors do not explain this. They don't give any information around the list of foods to avoid at all. Like, you know, they don't tell you how to test it. They don't tell you, like you just said, they just hand you this piece of paper. And then, you know, that creates all these people in these support groups. They're in, they're not informed either that are just spreading more and more false information to other people. And, you know, it does need to have more awareness about how to properly do an elimination diet, you know, how to test your triggers, how to, you know, how, how long to do an elimination diet, like, Mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, it's, it's, it is scary because as someone who's been having almost a full life of an eating disorder, I can tell you that the effects of malnourishment make all of these things worse. So um, it's really important to look at your body holistically and know that food, it food, (laughs) well, I do agree that people do have food triggers and that they do need to stay away from. Mm-hmm. You're, they're probably over, they're probably overreacting to the amount of things. And, you know, you're depriving your body of really essential nutrients, you know, for your bones, for your heart, for your brain. So yeah. it's really important to make sure that, you know, you keep, you keep uh, yourself the best you can uh, aware of what really does bother you and re- really doesn't. I mean, it's hard to know, but yeah, totally. I mean, that's why people like you exist. Do you want to help people try to figure this out? Yeah. And I am one of the only ones, which is unfortunate. And I'm you know, trying to educate everybody I can, but that's another thing is if somebody goes to a registered dietitian, which is the right thing to do, the safe yeah. thing to do, there's a really big chance that they are not going to know anything about IC yep. and we are not taught about it in college. Um, it, I mean, it's not their fault. No, they're only going to know about it if they have IC or they have somebody in their life that has it, or they just love research. And that is just something that I want everybody to keep in mind is that, you know, it, if you can get a dietitian to be covered through insurance, that's fantastic. I (laughs) don't know what percentage of companies would cover it, but but yeah, some, yeah. So, you know, that that's ideal, but you know, a lot of people are doing elimination diets by themselves and on their own. And that is where it can get really dangerous and risk all of those deficiencies Mm -hmm. if you're not doing it right. Yes. Yes. And you're right. There's so, I mean, there's so much, uh, that, that needs to change for, for this to get better with you know, uh, the, the food, the food portion of IC, like back all the way back to doctors needing to just simply explain the food list correctly, you know? Yeah, but, exactly. But doctors take one class in college on nutrition and they declare this, <laughs> this is my personal feelings. Um, they declare themselves nutrition experts. Like when I work in the hospital, um, I, I used to work in a hospital and I still do sometimes. Um, they typically don't listen to the dietitian's recommendations. They do what they want, you know, you know, all power to them. They're doctors. It's great. But, you know, 
sometimes it's, it's best to let the nutrition experts do their thing and, and respect, you know, another profession. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. That I've never actually come across a doctor who's ever given me nutrition advice that has been uh, good advice. So <laughs> my experience, so it's such a shame, but um, I wanted to see, you know, how you are in the present with food. Like, where are you at? Um, well, yeah, that's a good question. And uh, unfortunately, like, because I have uh, many chronic illnesses, each chronic illness comes with its own very own list of food not to eat. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, at this point, if I follow the list, there are zero foods I can eat. Mm-hmm. Zero. <laughs> what, what are the, so are you doing something for like the IBS? Yeah. So I have found, uh, and I don't even want to say this term, but I have found that personally a histamine diet has mm-hmm. helped me. Uh, but right now I'm the, because of how bad my eating disorder currently is, and I don't want to hopefully tr- trigger anybody out there, um, that may be listening. Um, I am just, just working on trying to get the courage to um, try new things. And, uh, but I'm in my pain so bad right now, it's making it hard to test things because I'm at like a nine out of 10 on the pain, pain scale. So, but my biggest priority right now is trying to get my, my nutrients um, and uh, just get new foods that feel comfortable into my, into my group right now, because right now, uh, you know, it's it's not it's not good for what's going on with me uh so um I'm going to try to uh you know just I, I don't, I'm still trying to work up a game plan because I know that what I'm do- doing is not correct um but or it's not like safe long term no not at all okay. yeah you can't, you can't be on a histamine low histamine diet uh a low FODMAP diet a low uh co- like keto diet you can't be on these diets long term um and i can tell you that because i have been on them long term and i can tell you that it it 100% contributed to a lot of my chronic illnesses especially my gut illnesses by uh eliminating food groups because mm-hmm. when you try to add them back in again your your body no longer knows how to absorb and and uh process these things because you've taken them out so you've given your, yourself a, a, actually a harder right, road moving forward by eliminating things. So that's mm-hmm. like the elimination diets could do that is, is hurt you long-term if you keep doing them. Yeah. So true. Yeah. So they're not, they're not sustainable. So, but they're, they're good. They're good to, to try though. But definitely. You know. Yeah. If you do it correctly and you don't, you know, take too much time doing it. Um, and you're, you're eating a balanced diet still through it, then mm-hmm. yes, it, it can be very helpful. Um, I did want to ask you, cause I remember you said, um, recently you had another UTI and it kind of brought you out of remission is how, how you said it. Right. Yep. Can you, uh, yes. Yeah. Talk about that. Um, yeah. So I actually, uh, <laughs> I actually was in a, you know, people define, can define remission in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, my definition of remission was that I had, I was still having, you know, I see symptoms, but they were low, they were manageable and they were more infrequent. 
So that's how I define remission. Maybe some people have zero symptoms and that's what they think remission is. Yeah, but, I feel like for people like you and me who have had this our entire lives, yeah. remission is so different, like our definitions. Yeah. And when people ask me if I'm in remission, I'm like, well, are we going off of my definition or your definition? Yeah. Because by my definition, yeah, I guess. Yeah. No. Who's to say, right? <laughs> I mean, I I think that remission is whatever whatever you feel it is, whatever means that you get back to a life that's manageable for Mm -hmm. you. It doesn't have to be perfect, but it's manageable. And I was manageable. And truthfully, I don't know what exactly it was that put me into a state of remission. It might've been all the things that I tried finally just decided to like, my body was like, Hey, you know, we, we, we hear you. (laughs) 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 But, um, I was in a brief period of remission and then, um, uh, you know, had to fall in love and meet an amazing person and get a UTI. <laughs> ah, that's what love does. It hurts. <laughs> love, love gave me a UTI. <laughs> oh my gosh. So how long ago was that? That was about, um, three or four weeks, well, about a month ago. And, um, unfortunately it pulled me out of remission. Um, so I'm in the daily the daily uh, pains again. And um, I have to re strategize what I'm going to do now. Yeah. So how do you typically deal with like your daily symptoms or if you get like a flare? I don't know if you get flares. Yeah. Um, so that's hard. I, to, people ask all the time, like, what is a flare versus like, you know, chronic pain versus remission. And I would say that my day is just nothing but like I flare hundreds of times a day. Like I could literally be like for one hour have pain maybe at a five. And then for the next two hours, I'm at a 10. And then it goes back down to the five again. Like it just changes so constantly. And then I have like full days that are like, you know, all day raging pain. And then I have days that fall that are like, I'm at a five the whole day. So um, right now I don't have a good because I was in remission and I got to like, forget about this stuff. So I uh, don't have a good plan for flares right now for what helps me. Uh, ice packs help me a lot with the burning. Mm-hmm. Me too. I'm, an ice, I'm an ice pack girl. Everyone else loves yeah. their heat pads, but I'm like, yeah. no shame to the heat pads and whatever works. Um, no, absolutely. I think it's our subtype. Like we just respond yeah. best to that. And have you ever tried or have you heard of the fire crotch fairy? Yep. <laughs> Have you ever tried anything from her? Um, yeah, actually, I don't know if it's the fire crotch fairy, but I have these IC specific ice packs that are for okay. your, for your, um, your lady parts that your yes. lady parts. Yes. Yep. Um, they have but she has a, and I, I have it in my room. I'm not gonna show it to you. Uh, <laughs> but it's like a balm. So it's think of like a chapstick tube, but like, 20 times bigger and it has peppermint oil in it, which makes it feel like icy hot without the hot. And that is like my lifeline when I'm having burning. Me too. Actually, I didn't have her product, but I have uh, another similar product. Okay. So it's similar. It's a a icy hot kind of product. And I, I put it on, you know, whoever needs it, my lower back, my lower stomach, like maybe my thighs or whatever whatever might need it. And 
it, it, it really does distract the pain away. It's like, feels so good. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. And just like peridium work for you. Unfortunately, I have a red dye sensitivity. Oh um, no. I know, of course, because I have uh, a lot of bad allergies. Um, so Pridium does not work for me. Um, I have not tried Dorabelle yet. Okay. I hope to try. It's one thing I'm going to ask my doctor for. Yeah, yeah. And usually the the urologists and neurogynos have free samples of those. So you don't have to buy it because it's really expensive. <laughs> even if you have insurance, like it's stupid. I think I paid like $97 for 90 pills, which isn't horrible, but still. (laughs) I love that for us. Yes. So yeah. Okay. Well, you'll have to keep me posted on how that all goes, but I wanted, before we finish here, I wanted to touch on the whole nervous system, chronic pain topic. I feel like you have some things you want to say. Yeah. I by no means claim to be an expert on the nervous system by any means. I am learning and I am not you know, I'm not, what I say is maybe not perfect, but, um, so I did investigation of like, why did I get all these chronic illnesses? Like, like, at the same, like all in a row at the same time. And that's like, that's wild. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I came across, um, I came across a lot of studies on the nervous system. And if you experience like, you know, long-term pain, like anything over like six months, Um, you know, your brain actually starts to rewire itself um, into um, something called hyper arousal, or like, you could call it that or fight or flights uh, uh, type setting in your brain. And when your brain stays in that chronic, you know, hyper aroused fight or flight mode, um, it doesn't handle normal things that your body should be doing easily or outside triggers like just normal things that we do every day that take that we take for granted it your brain doesn't handle those things like normally anymore it starts to perceive a lot of things that are you know pretty basic about life as a threat like you know food or maybe just like light sound uh, human touch like it starts to perceive those things as more you know uh severe than they really are like you know sometimes a hug hurts me because I'm that I mean, I'm so much in this fight or flight that my body's like, oh my God, like, so with that said, I think that because I've been stuck in a chronic fight or flight from the pain, um, I started to develop a lot of these other chronic illnesses through, you know, this traumatic, you know, state that my brain is in. Um, And I thought, oh my God, is this permanent? Like, is this is this going to keep happening? Like, will I get more diseases because I'm stuck in this? And that's kind of when I started to find out that you can actually rewire your brain. There are there different types of therapies out there. Um, I think it's called DNRS um, that can help you to get your brain out of this hypersensitivity, hyper arousal and fight or flight, fight or flight mode. Um, your brain has something called neuroplasticity, which, you know, it, it rewired itself wrong, but it can rewire itself right again. Um, but it will take a lot of time. So I think that this could be a good piece in my story to maybe see some relief. If I can, um, rewire my brain to get out of this very, um, sensitive state that it's in Mm -hmm. somehow. (laughs) 
so I, I will be doing this. Uh, I, it's a, a therapy um, over the next course of the year. I'm going to be focusing on it and see where I get with it, you know, but it's something to, for people to look into. If you feel that you're a hypersensitive person, have a lot of food intolerances, you know, any type of allergies, it's because your brain, um, your brain is just in sense, it's trapped in the sensitive mode. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, so it might be something for anyone, I mean, to look into. So to yeah. the brain. <laughs> I had never heard of that specific therapy before, you know, you told me about it, but I have been diving into the TMS realm, mm -hmm. which sounds a little bit similar. It, it really goes through, you know, the mind body connection and basically like journaling through your past traumas that you're holding onto, but you might not know. And yeah. I did a 30 day like course and I felt so much better afterwards yep. and like it, it caused me to start thinking about did, <laughs> this is going to sound silly, but like, was I born with IC or did I develop it after some trauma that maybe I don't remember or I don't know about? I don't yep. know if you've ever kind of went down that mental path. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I think of this all the time. And I think for me specifically, I'm not quite sure. I mean, I might've been born with um, a weakened area in my body, but I think that the trauma that I experienced brought it out. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I think that your, your brain stores a lot of this trauma and sometimes it manifests physically. And I'm not saying that, you know, the pains in your head or any of that stuff that people you know, hate hearing. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, with pain, there's all kinds of approaches. You definitely need to take sometimes a traditional approach or maybe like a holistic approach, but, you know, you have to also take a therapeutic approach and consider trauma-based um, stuff too. Right. Yeah. I mean, whatever it takes. Um, yeah. I always tell people, think of it, think of your IC as a puzzle that you need to find, you know, puzzle pieces to fit. And it's most likely going to take a combination of yep. different treatment methods and it might be a medication and something you know out of the box that yeah. you might never think would work but everything's worth a try as long as absolutely. it's safe absolutely yeah so I think that you know addressing these traumas and uh stuff like that's part of my puzzle so just one part so yeah okay well I feel like you and I could talk about this forever okay. and I plan to talk to you more, you know, every day, but I wanted to ask you kind of in conclusion, what advice would you have for somebody who is newly diagnosed with IC? Yeah. I mean, gosh, there's so many things, but I guess for me, it would be just to know that it it can get better <laughs> number one um number two that just be cautious about the support groups they're helpful but they also can they can build into the fear if you're feeling very vulnerable um number three the ic food group list isn't law it's not but to to follow it try it out but it, it it's <laughs> not it's not law uh -huh. for you 
And then the most important thing that I like to tell people that, you know, I needed to hear is that even though that you have this pain, you're still worthy of love. You're worthy of having a partner, a relationship, you know, whatever it is that you want, because, you know, this pain is not your fault. So that's really important for people to know. Absolutely. And like kind of pivoting off of that, like, what would you give, what advice would you give somebody that has a history of an eating disorder and gets diagnosed? Is that advice different? I mean, it still would stay the same, but I would say if you go into a urologist's office or your doctor's office, wherever you go, make sure to tell them first that you have an eating disorder. If maybe they're, they're not checking your records, um, probably well enough. And I would state that as part of the, your story when you're telling them what's going on so that they don't, so that there is a no chance or a minimal chance for a doctor to trigger you uh, with dietary stuff. Yeah, that's great advice. I, I totally agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so this was really an awesome conversation. I feel like we touched on so many different topics, but they were all like such important parts of the IC world and, and just topics that people are wondering about. So I think that this conversation will really help people to just feel heard, feel understood. Um, And if they have any questions, like, do you mind if they reach out to you like on Instagram? No, not at all. I have spent the last several years just trying to help people that also have IC and it's something that I love doing. Yeah, that's really great. Um, what is your Instagram handle? Uh, <laughs> it's Jenna. I have to. It's Jenna Monstrosity because <laughs> I'm only four foot eleven, so it's the perfect. <laughs> I always um, wondered why. <laughs> I gotta make fun of myself. Um, because people always say I look tall in real life. I mean, look, I look tall on the internet, and then when they meet you do. me, yeah, I look tall on the internet, and then when they meet me, they're like, "What happened?" Jenna underscore monstrosity. I guess there must be another Jenna monstrosity. (laughs) But yeah, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. I know, you know, with all of all of the symptoms that you have going on, it probably wasn't comfortable to sit here and talk to me for an hour, but I really appreciate it. You're so welcome anytime. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to that interview as much as I loved participating in it. And if you love the show, I would really appreciate if you could subscribe, give me five stars um, in the ratings. That really, really, really helps me. And I really do appreciate it. All right. I hope you have a flare free week and I will talk to you next week.